would help if I took it off mute. Huh. <coughs> all right, so I wonder this slide I have up here, you're all, wait a second, it's not Monday the 1st. I, I really tried to find one with a Sunday the 1st circled, but that didn't work, so. <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. So last week, you might remember, I gave an announcement that our, our ministry schedule we use for Sunday school and ushers and everything had a, a date missing. It skipped right over today, March 1st, and went to March 8th. So anyone who uses a paper schedule, we needed to correct that. That was last week. I, I gave an announcement about that so you know in time. On, on the plus side, Donut Day is back in business. There we go. But imagine my chagrin when I realized that now that March 1st was back on, that meant I was back on up here. <laughs> you know, If I had just kept my mouth shut about the wrong schedule, you know, I'd be back there teaching some kids about King David right now. You know, I'm just joking, obviously. I, I really do enjoy coming in here and sharing with you guys. Uh, and I found out a while ago that I was teaching today. It's been on my calendar. And though I kid, it's, it's really just great to, to, to be in here with you. The last time I was up here teaching was my third consecutive time change Sunday. And the streak has come to an end, because we didn't, we didn't change the clocks today, did we? We're changing them next week, you know? It was very close to having four in a row, but, you know, all good things must come to an end. Um, you know, I've still got my fallback day streak going. I'm at two there. I could get another one this fall, you know? And if I had to give one up, the one where we lose an hour of sleep would be the one I would pick. Justin can have that one, you know? <laughs> I'm willing to share. But last week, Scott Mitchell came down from Calvary Chapel in Rockland, and he gave a great lesson on the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, what we call Palm Sunday. He talked about how because of the upcoming Passover feast and Jesus' recent miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, there was this great mixing of people going on in Jerusalem as people from farther away headed into Jerusalem for the feast while people who lived near there were coming and talking about Lazarus and how he was alive and what Jesus had done. Uh, and so everyone was talking about Jesus. Everyone was talking about Lazarus and, what, and that he had been raised from the dead. And so these new people from farther away were all coming into the city and they were all hearing it you know, together that they, that about the miracles that Jesus had worked. Um, to recap, let's read verses 9 to 10 of John chapter 12. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Scott likened these chief priests to mafia bosses plotting to kill someone who interfered with their plans. And I'd say that gives a very accurate picture of how the chief priests and other Jewish leaders operated back then. They were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the people, and they wanted to kill Lazarus, who was guilty of what? Dying and then being brought back to life. Really, what he was most guilty of was being a living witness for Jesus. I'm sure he told anyone who asked him how he came to be still alive that Jesus had raised him from the dead. 
But even if he kept silent about this, his very presence there, a dead man walking around alive, was a very inconvenient proof of Jesus' power for the chief priests and other leaders. He had the power of over life and death, proof that supported his claim to being the Messiah and the Son of God. John Trapp, an English Bible commentator in the 1600s, said of this, What a giant-like madness was this, to take up arms against heaven itself, to seek to kill a man only because God had made him alive. Another British theologian, Adam Clark, said, How blind were these men not to perceive that he who raised him after he had been dead four days could raise him again, though they had slain him a thousand times. Now, Clark lived in the 17 and 1800s. People have been marveling at the blindness and wickedness of the leaders in Jesus' time for centuries, for 2,000 years. It's hard to believe, isn't it? How blind they could be. We see their exasperation with the situation growing in verses 17 to 19. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they heard that he had given these, this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The whole world going after Jesus is what brings us to today's section. It's quite short. It's only three verses, verses 20 to 22. But I think we can find plenty here to study and apply to our own lives. Pastor Rich certainly thought so because that's the assignment he gave me. That's all. <laughs> so let's read that together, verses 20 to 22. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Now, I will admit that when I read this section, after he told, Pastor Rich told me to do it, I said to myself, wait, is that it? Now, these are certainly verses that I've read before while reading the Gospel of John, but I passed through them quickly between the triumphal entry and the words that Jesus speaks next, which foretell the suffering that he would go through to pay the price for our sin. The request of these unnamed Greeks is never directly addressed. We are not sure if they were present when Jesus spoke in verses 23 to 27 or not. Now, I've wondered before if perhaps it was not the right time to meet with them because they were Greeks, and their time would come later when the gospel went to the Gentiles after being rejected by the Jews. Jesus had, however, made time for Gentiles before. He healed the Roman centurion's servant and commended the faith that he showed in saying that Jesus could heal the man with only a word in Matthew 8 and Luke 7. When a Canaanite woman came to him asking for healing for her demon-possessed daughter in Matthew chapter 15, he first told her that it was not right to give the children's bread to the dogs, but when she persisted and said that even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table, he told her that she had great faith as well and healed her daughter. So it was not that Jesus strictly refused to see Gentiles that led to him seemingly ignoring the request of the Greeks. That Jesus replied to Philip and Andrew, and the first thing he said in verse 23 was, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, may indicate instead that it was not time for him to meet these Greeks or anyone else at this point, for the last days of his life had come. Jesus was nearing the cross, and he had things to do and to tell his disciples 
in the short time that he had left. Whatever the reason, we do not see a direct response from Jesus to these Greeks, but we can still learn something from these few verses about them. Now, we don't know much about these Greeks themselves either. We don't get a biography about them here. It's possible that they were proselytes, which would be full converts to Judaism, or that they were God-fearers like the centurion we just mentioned, people who had great respect for the Lord but had not become Jews themselves. Many Greeks, as can be seen later in the book of Acts, were simply curious about other peoples and their beliefs. These men, unless in Jerusalem on some other business, would seem to be a bit more than just curious, as they had come a very long way to attend the Feast of Passover. You know, I wouldn't necessarily, on my list of uh, events to attend, just because I was curious, go to the Jewish Feast of Passover and eat some lamb with some bitter herbs, and then pack my stuff up and go back to Greece. That's, that doesn't seem like a destination kind of event for people who don't have some belief in God and want to worship Him at the temple. There are other cultures and pagan gods that I'm sure had great big parties that people would probably want to attend just for the sake of going, but I don't think that the Passover feast was one of them. What we do know about them is that they wanted to meet Jesus. They sought him out. They, like everyone else in Jerusalem, had likely heard the stories of the miraculous signs Jesus had done, particularly the recent raising of Lazarus. This made them want to see Jesus for themselves. One Bible scholar, F.F. Bruce, wondered if perhaps they had one additional reason for seeking out Jesus. Even though it's not recorded in John's gospel here, after the triumphal entry, Jesus had cleared the temple of the merchants and money changers who had set up shop in the outer courts. These outer courts were the only place designated for Gentiles to worship the Lord. Sorry. I don't know what's going on with this thing. <laughs> there we go. Jesus clears the temple. Very good. Technical difficulties. Was that me or did you guys do that for me back there? Thank you. <laughs> Let's see how it works on the next one. <laughs> I'll give you a sign <laughs> if it doesn't. These outer courts were the only place designated for Gentiles to worship the Lord. And when Jesus cleared the temple, he quoted Isaiah at the time and said, Oh, it worked. Good. Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations? In clearing these courts, Jesus had given them back their place to worship and had even made mention that it was for all the nations. If these Greeks knew about this, it would have given them more reason to seek out Jesus. The Jewish leaders of the time certainly were no friends to Gentile believers, as they held their lineage from Abraham in such high regard and every other nationality in such low regard. In fact, in the book of Acts, the word Gentile would provoke rage in the Jewish leaders on more than one occasion. Jesus was different from all the leaders they had ever known before. They said, we'd like to see Jesus in the NIV translation, or we wish to see Jesus in the New King James, and we would see Jesus in the Old King James. They could have just heard the stories about him and said, huh, that's pretty interesting. 
And I'm sure there were plenty of people who responded that way to news about Jesus. But instead, these Greeks made an effort to find out where he was and to try to see him, to meet with him. They were people seeking not only to know more about him, because everyone could tell, him, tell them more about him. The whole city was abuzz with things about him. But they wanted to meet him personally. And though I've been talking for quite some time now, that brings me to what I would say is my first main point about this short passage. People wish to see Jesus. There are still people who are seeking Jesus, as these Greeks did. Now, I know this may seem like stating the obvious in a room full of believers, because we're all here because we wish to seek Jesus, correct? But out there, there are people who are still wishing to see Jesus, too, who aren't here today. How many of you in your workplace or your school or wherever it is that you interact with the general world around you ever feel discouraged that it seems no one is seeking Jesus? No one wants to see Jesus. No one cares about Jesus anymore. It happens to me when I look around my office and can't find anyone else who wants to seek after Jesus or who is actively seeking after Jesus, it can be discouraging. When we look around us at the direction our nation is heading in, it can be heartbreaking. Our society as a whole is steadily turning away from the beliefs it was founded upon, beliefs in Jesus and His Word. But there are people seeking Jesus. Besides what we see in our daily lives, we have media in all different formats, TV shows, music, internet articles, and what have you, that by and large would have us believe that we're some kind of dying breed. We're being steadily phased out in the name of a more progressive society. I would firstly say about this that even though the drop in people who call themselves Christians is real and disturbing, Viewing anything through the lens of Hollywood and mainstream media can give you a very distorted picture of reality. There are more of us still than they will ever put on screen in a TV show or movie. I guess we're just not interesting for the kind of movies and TV shows they're trying to make. We don't belong there. There are still plenty of us. Sure, we want to see more, but... We're not the last of us right here. And really, it can be uh, misleading to just look around in our immediate vicinity and think that this is going on necessarily everywhere because there are people coming to Jesus all over the world in countries where they have to give their lives up to do so. God is not worried by statistics. He cares about each of the people that those statistics represent, but he is not worried about what percentage of the United States identifies themselves as a Christian. He's God, and he doesn't worry about anything. None of this comes as a surprise to him. And we need to remember that even if the trend continues and Christians actually become a very small minority in our country, we first of all have God with us. And that's worth more than any strength in numbers we could ever come up with. 
Throughout the rest of the world, there's populations of Christians living in great minority, in danger in many places, but God is with them as well. And even if that should happen to us here, we should never buy into the idea that no one is seeking Jesus anymore because that will naturally lead us to give up on sharing Him with anyone. If we think no one is seeking Him, then we'll stop trying to share Him with people. In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah the prophet, in a time of discouragement, fled to the wilderness and hid from the wicked queen Jezebel. When God asked him what he was doing there, he told the Lord that everyone had turned to idols and killed all the prophets, that he was the only one left, and now they were trying to kill him too. God saw his need for encouragement and caused his glory to pass before Elijah, then spoke to him in a still small voice and told him to go back. He told him who to choose to help him in his ministry, and he told him, by the way, there were still 7,000 people in the northern kingdom of Israel that had not turned to idolatry. Elijah got caught up in what he saw around him, and he thought there was no one left but him. And we can do the same thing. There were 7,000 people he didn't know about. And God pointed that out to him. So it's easy to get discouraged by general apathy and even animosity towards the Lord that we see today, but there are people, other people out there, not in church right now, who want to see Jesus. Some of them don't even know they want to see Jesus. They know their lives are missing something, missing purpose and meaning, missing love and forgiveness. But they may not know just who they need to meet. They may even be those people you work with or go to school with who discourage you so much. They show zero interest in anything to do with Jesus. They aren't actively seeking Him. They may even be fighting against Him. But deep down, somewhere in their soul, they have a need for Him. And they want to see Him. The Bible gives numerous examples of people who turn to God after appearing the most unlikely of converts. Chief among them, the Apostle Paul. Though he persecuted the church vehemently, making it his life's mission to stamp out what he saw as a dangerous cult of those who would follow Jesus. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus himself, and spent the rest of his life serving him and leading others to him. He didn't look like someone who wanted to see Jesus, did he? But he did. He just didn't know it yet. Thank the Lord that He doesn't depend on us first wanting to see Him. We can't write anyone off as a result, as a lost cause. No matter how strongly they rail against any mention of Jesus, they may be another like Paul or like any of the countless other unlikely people who have turned to Jesus throughout all the centuries since. I could spend 10 minutes listing examples of famous Christians who once opposed him so strongly. They were the staunchest of atheists, and they turned to Jesus. Not every person who wants to see Jesus knows it or would admit it, and they certainly don't wear signs around their necks that say, I want to see Jesus, please tell me more about him. Many of us were those people at some point in our lives. 
in some ways seeking God, whether we knew it or not, and then in many various ways, each one specially crafted for each one of us, God brought us to him and brought us here. We realized that we wanted to see Jesus. There are more people out there that need to realize the same thing, and perhaps have even started to. So what can we do? Of course, the first thing we can do is pray for them. Pray for their eyes and hearts to be open to their need for a Savior. Pray for opportunities to share Jesus with them. Pray that the Holy Spirit would draw them, because without God working in our hearts, we can by no means come to Him. Even the faith it takes to turn to Him has to come from Him first. And if you do happen to see someone who is actively seeking after God, who is asking those obvious questions, like these Greeks who came to Philip and said, we would like to see Jesus, don't let that chance to point the way to Him go by. Now, I'm going to talk about how we show Jesus to people around us in a few minutes. That's just a little teaser. You know, like when the weatherman says, and when we come back, I'll tell you about tomorrow's commute so that you don't change the channel, right? Before I get to that, I think we need to ask ourselves a question, though. It's a kind of a hard question. I just talked about how there are unbelievers out there who want to see Jesus, whether they know it or not. But I have to ask, do we wish to see Jesus? Of course we do, right? We're all at church. We want to see Him to some extent. That's why we're here, I hope. But do we want to see Him more and more in our lives each day? The easy answer is yes. But we're, as believers, we're called to a life of constant growth in Him. It's a little tougher to answer that one. I think all of us want that, but are we doing anything about that? It's a little convicting to think of that. How much do, more do I want to see Jesus? You know, I taught a lesson a while ago about how we're all in the process of becoming who God made us to be, how we're all like fixer-upper houses on an HGTV show, right? And the big reveal for us doesn't come after, you know, just a couple months of intensive work by whichever famous renovation crew you prefer. Um, It comes at the end of our lives when we get to heaven and we get a resurrected body. And there's no more crying, no more pain, no more sin, no more death. We see Jesus face to face. God isn't in a mad rush to meet a deadline to get everything done on time. That final transformation happens instantaneously. But until then, we should have some renovations steadily going on while we're still here waiting for that. We're not going to reach a point in this life when the whole house is perfect and we have no more work to do. If we get to a point where we think that about ourselves, we've got it all wrong. We're supposed to be seeking Jesus more and more so that we can grow in Him and grow more like Him. So I'll ask again, do we wish to see Jesus more and more? Or are we kind of satisfied where we're at? Matthew Henry, who was, you guessed it, another English commentator, born in the 1600s, said this, 
The great desire of our souls should be to see Jesus, to have our acquaintance with him increased, our dependence on him encouraged, our conformity to him carried on, to see him as ours, to keep up communion with him and derive communications of grace from him. We miss of our end in coming if we do not see Jesus. Now, Henry was speaking of seeing Jesus as the point behind attending what he called holy ordinances of the church, such as baptism and particularly communion. He said there at the end of the quote, we miss our end in coming if we do not see Jesus, meaning we miss the whole reason for being there. I would say that the same applies to each time you come here. The famous evangelical church in Los Angeles called the Church of the Open Door. That's a pretty cool picture, isn't it? where the great preacher J. Vernon McGee was pastor for over 20 years, had a plaque mounted on the pulpit that only the speaker could see, which read, Sir, we would see Jesus. And a quick Google search finds other churches with similar plaques on their pulpit to remind the preacher of what the people were there for, to see Jesus. This rig that we have here doesn't really lend itself to plaques, but I've got a sticky note that I put on it. Sir, we would see Jesus. Unfortunately, many churches have forgotten that this is the reason people should be coming in the first place. I do pray that out of everything I say here today, what you remember is not from me, but from him, that you would see Jesus. Our need to see Jesus, to seek him out, goes beyond our time here, though. There's a reason that Pastor Rich talks over and over again about our need for daily devotional time, time alone with God. We can only grow so much if we eat one day a week, right? It's just a short time we have here. Maybe some of you are thinking, not short enough. (laughs) Maybe you thought you'd get a break from that point about daily devotional time, with Pastor Rich being away. But my sensei has taught me far too well to avoid a golden opportunity to tell you all to read your Bible every day, not just here in the dojo. (laughs) And I know many of you do, but we can all go through stretches when we get knocked out of our habits. I like to read and pray early in the morning. That's, that's a shocker, right? That's, that's what most people say, right? <laughs> I like to read early in the morning before anyone else gets up. It's quiet. I can get my time alone with God. However, my daughter Violet, who's two, she's added quite a bit of variance to the equation of before anyone else gets up. Sometimes she gets up late. Sometimes she gets up early. Sometimes I think if I snooze the alarm, I'll still have time to read, and then she gets up as soon as I've read the first verse. So I get her out of bed, and I get her some milk and sit back down, and then we all go about our business getting ready for work. Baby needs a diaper, and next thing you know, I've got to get ready for work, and I haven't really gotten the time that I needed to spend with God that morning. And what time I did get was rushed. Maybe I managed to read, but I didn't spend much time in prayer. So either I have to set my alarm earlier and stop hitting the snooze button ever, 
or I need to find a better place to hide in the morning. <laughs> and that wouldn't make me the greatest father or husband, so I think I'm going to have to do the hard thing and get up earlier and stop hitting the snooze button, especially with a baby coming in April. As a side note, I should also mention that in addition to that, Violet now has mastered saying, Daddy, do you want to play with me? Right as I'm getting ready to go out the door. <laughs> with the puppy dog eyes and everything. You know, it's, I'm doomed. I'm doomed in a good way, the best possible way one can be doomed to have an adorable little girl who wants to play with me. So I try to spend a couple of minutes trotting her little plastic horses around the barn with her before I head out the door, too. All that to say, I know sometimes life can get crazy, and it seems that the time we take to spend in the Word and in prayer can get pushed to the side. But we all need daily time with Him. And if that happens to you or it's happening right now, I would just encourage you to find a time that works and just keep at it, even just a few minutes a day. Before you read, pray and ask God to speak to you through his word and to reveal himself to you. If you're already doing all of that and you're on a good streak right now, fantastic. Maybe you can get involved in a Bible study if you aren't already. Maybe there's some other way that God is calling you to seek him that you haven't before in a new way. I can't say what that might mean in your life, but God will guide you and direct you as you seek him in new ways to know him better. Now, there's one song we sing every week with the kids in Sunday school worship. It's called Seek Ye First. And it's quite an old song, a hymn, really, that perhaps many of you have heard before, too. And the lyrics are taken from Matthew 6.33 and 7.7. And despite being the quietest, slowest song that we ever sing in there, which is really the opposite of what the kids tend to like, right? The kids want the, the fast, boppy, jumpy songs. It's still hands down the most popular song we sing. We sing it every week as the last song we sing. And if we didn't, there would be some kind of a revolt. Wait, 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 what happened to Seeky first? What's going on? It's really amazing, but it's God's Word. That's why. The, the verses are directly from God's Word. And, you know, we're all fine with it because it's a nice slow song to calm everybody back down when we've been jumping around and singing before we go and study. And it describes what we want to teach the kids to do in their lives, to seek God first in His kingdom. The song is in the Old King James translation, as you might guess from the ye, but we can read it in the NIV. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And then verse 7-7 seven, seven says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. So we need seeking Jesus and his kingdom to be an everyday part of our lives. I don't know about you, but if... Now that I've been reading at least a little bit of my Bible every day pretty consistently for a while, if there's ever some weird day where the alarm doesn't work and I just have to jump right up and go straight to work, it's, I find myself all out of sorts without that good start of my day connecting with Jesus. 
first things first. It's, it's not a legalistic checkbox or something I have to do. It's something I know I need. The Greeks who had never met Jesus wished to see him. They wished to know him better. We who know him as our Lord and Savior should wish to know him more too. What happens to any relationship when you stop spending any time together? It's not as strong as it used to be. You don't know that friend like you used to know them. We don't know what's going on with them. We don't want that to happen in our relationship with Jesus, so we need to keep seeking after him. As we seek him, we will be better able to show him to the people around us, especially those unbelievers who we first talked about who wish to see Jesus, whether they know it yet or not. And this is what I hinted at earlier, that weatherman tease. We've seen that people want to see Jesus. We've looked at what we should do ourselves to see more of Jesus. And now we can look at how others should see Jesus in us. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were jailed for preaching the gospel to a large crowd of people who gathered after they healed a crippled man and brought before the high priest and other rulers the next day. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to preach to them that only through Jesus could men be saved. He was preaching to a very hostile audience, but he did it courageously. And verse 13 of that chapter says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. If even those who jailed and persecuted Jesus and his followers could see that these men had been with Jesus, can people who may really want to see Jesus see that we have been with him? People who may be looking for him in us? Can they see a difference in our lives, in how we treat people, how we treat each other even? Are we showing them that a life of following Jesus is a life full of joy, even when we go through various trials? If Peter and John could proclaim the gospel to those who had arranged Jesus' crucifixion, can we be honest about our faith among the people we know? Charles Spurgeon said this, you guessed it, another English preacher. I don't have anything against American preachers, by the way. (laughs) Obviously. If we were what we profess to be and what we should be, we would be pictures of Christ. Yes, such striking likenesses of Him that the world wouldn't have to hold all of us up together by the hour and say, well, there seems to be somewhat of a resemblance. Instead, they would, when they first notice us, exclaim, they have been with Jesus. They have been taught by Him. They are like Him. They have caught the very idea of the holy man of Nazareth, and they work it out in their lives and everyday actions. Just some great quotes from the English guys, that's all. And I don't know about you, but the conviction hit hard when I read that. I flashed back to all the ways that saying that I even bear somewhat of a resemblance to Jesus would be very generous over the last week, even, of my life whether you're in a workplace or school or anywhere else out in the world, it can be very difficult to stay out of conversations that we shouldn't be in or even just to make sure that we don't react to problems around us in a way that isn't very Christ-like. That's before we even get to how we should be acting with our own families, especially those of us with children who we are meant to lead by example. You parents out there know what I'm talking about and you probably beat yourself up like I do 
for the times when you regret saying things to your kids or doing things in front of them that you know weren't like Jesus at all. Now, we're all works in progress, yes, but some of that progress should be continuing and visible to those around us, shouldn't it? As believers, we know that the Lord has begun a good work in us and He will be faithful to complete it. But to some degree, if we really want to be witnesses for Him in this world, we need to stop getting in the way of the work that He wants to do in our lives and resisting the calling we have to lead a different life than those in the world around us. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, Jesus said to His disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane as He encouraged them to pray that they would not fall into temptation. We have these battles between the Spirit and the flesh going on over and over again each day. And the decisions we make can either strengthen our spirit and establish a habit of doing the right thing, as Jesus would, which sets us apart from the world and makes us a better picture of Christ, or give in to our flesh and establish a pattern of doing what is wrong and blending in with everyone else. This calls to mind Proverbs 25, 26. Like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. Does anyone want to take a drink from a muddied spring or a polluted well? But it's living water that should be flowing out of our lives. This is all getting pretty heavy, isn't it? For a lesson about some Greeks wanting to see Jesus? I know, because it's heavy for me too. Half the time, all the time, the lesson that I come up here to give directly applies to me, too. So believe me, I'm right there with you. We all fall short of this standard. And thank the Lord, His mercies are new every morning. Unfortunately, I must say that our witness with people around us can take much longer to repair than the instant forgiveness that we receive from Christ when we confess our sins. He blots them out from His record and casts them as far as the east is from the west. But they don't necessarily do that and likely don't. So we need to ask God to help us even more to be better witnesses, to be more Christ-like going forward. On the bright side, if we've made it a habit of blowing it repeatedly for some time and then we finally stop, that should be a noticeable change. Perhaps even noticeable enough that people will ask us about it. And we can tell them that we realize there were some things in our lives that we knew just didn't match up with what we were supposed to be as followers of Jesus. So we asked Him to help us make a change. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Praise God that this is His work in us and not our work in ourselves. Please don't mistake that I'm telling you all to try harder to be better Christians. We just need to allow Him to do the work that He has already started in us. We are able to make choices that either aid in this transformation or get in the way. God doesn't save us and turn us into robots. He continues to allow us to make our own choices, but now, thanks to Jesus, we are no longer slaves to sin, and we're able, with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, to live lives of faithful obedience to Him. This work will be gratefully, greatly aided by our spending time seeking Jesus every day, as we talked about before. If we're always in His Word and we're always spending time in prayer, that can only help us to look more and more like Him each day. 
You might not consider yourself much of an evangelist, but we are all called to be witnesses for Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So let us be lights that Jesus has called us to be in the world. Then we can first show this light to the people who are seeking Jesus and then bring them to him, like Philip and Andrew, so they can meet him for themselves. Pastor Rich sent me this poem from an anonymous author a few weeks ago, knowing that it would come in handy today. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? I want my gospel to match the one written in here. And I want them to see it in me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that when we put our trust in you, you began a good work in us, and you will be faithful to complete it. I pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to make choices each day that show you to the world around us. Forgive us for all of the ways we haven't been doing that. We want more of you in our own lives. Help us to draw closer to you, to continue to grow in you as we spend time with you. And then we can be more of the lights that you have called us to be. Now perhaps there are some here today or watching the video later who have never given their lives to you and asked you to begin that good work. If that's you here today or later, you can pray right now. If you're wishing to see Jesus in your life, just pray along with me. Lord, I know that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And I believe that you came down from heaven, died on the cross, and rose again to be just that to all who would turn to you. I pray that you would be my Savior, begin that good work in me, and help me to grow in you each day. Thank you, Lord, that you paid the price for me to receive eternal life. Amen. Now have a great week, everyone. Let's all seek Jesus so the world can see him in us. And do not forget what day it is.